Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hopeful that this will increase the accessibility of our briefings for all Albertans. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavour to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panellists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible. In addition to our regular COVID-19 analysis for Alberta, we will focus today's briefing on post-COVID conditions, also known as long COVID. Today we will be joined by three Albertans currently struggling post-COVID. Susie Golding, who is the director of Long COVID Kids Canada and the founder of the Long COVID Haulers Support Group, 15-year-old Charlize, who was diagnosed with COVID in April 2021, and her mother, Nina. We also have LJ, a Long COVID patient, joining us via voice only. She was diagnosed in December 2020. Joining us from the clinical side of post-COVID conditions, we have Dr. Weatherald, respirologist, who has dedicated much of his clinical work over the pandemic to the COVID follow-up clinic located at the Peter Lougheed Centre in Calgary. We are also joined by a Calgary-based family doctor and medical educator from our Protect Our Province Coalition, Dr. Keegan. To begin with, Dr. Vipond will provide an update on COVID-19 in Alberta. Hey, everybody. Um... It's going to be a pretty quick one today because uh, I am unable to run the numbers until later tonight because um, I'm at work. Sometimes you got to work. So I'm just quickly running through the, the numbers. 1659 is today's um, cases per day. This is the highest uh, case uh, per day in the um, in the uh, intentionally cruel wave or the fourth wave. Um, last week, last week. Uh, Tuesday's cases were 1222, and I haven't calculated the percent increase, but it's a pretty, it's a bit of a bigger jump than we've seen in the past. On on the plus side, we've had positivity drop to 10.46. That's the first time it's been, um, you know, below 11 for a while. It's been kind of caught in a range there for a bit. Um, hospitalizations are up to 659. That's up uh, 18 from yesterday. I expect that to be revised. That's a pretty big jump um, for something that's announced. Um, ICUs are up seven to 218. That's a 40% increase from 148 last week, doubling time of 15 days. Um, and um, so that's uh, that's a pretty substantial uh, jump. Although the doubling time has dropped by one day, it still means we have um, exponential growth happening in the ICUs. Um, the most uh, important stat I think from today, there's two of them. The first is that uh, we have 24 new deaths this is the third deadliest day of the pandemic. That's of the entire pandemic and definitely the, the deadliest um, day of, the, um, of the, the intentionally cruel wave. I've been trying to get the demographics of those 24 deaths and I can't find them yet. They have not been posted on Aaron Toom's site, but uh, 
um, when I do my my Twitter bri um, briefing, I'll make sure to put that on there. The other thing I want to point out is that if you look at the age characteristics, this is the first day that the five to um, the five to eleven cohort is now the uh, most prevalent uh, cohort uh, in uh, of active cases at the moment. It surpassed the twenty to twenty nine cohort uh, today. So um, that's no surprise. It was predicted. Um, this is what happens when you don't protect kids in schools. Uh, and uh, there's really, um, I would say, not only no protection, but uh, the, the, the processes that are in place um, seem to be intentionally there to, to promulgate uh, spread by uh, just focusing on the lack of a mask mandate in those um, institutions and also the fact that they're not uh, reporting to parents where the, the spread is happening so parents can't make good decisions as to uh, whether to keep their kids in school or not. It's, um, I think at this point in the pandemic, there's so many things to be angry about, but uh, I'm sure this is one of the things that most uh, parents are most angry about. We're expecting to hear an announcement by uh, Premier Kenny at six o'clock um, regarding some new measures. Um, there's a, um, some leaks out as to, to what it might be. I sincerely hope those leaks are wrong because if that's all it is, um, we will have ongoing disaster in this province. So um, I'll be checking in with you again at seven to uh, to see what uh, what our response to um, to Premier Kenny's announcement is. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. And on that note, a couple of our physicians with Protect Our Province Alberta Coalition are going to offer a couple of additional words on what needs to come from the government of Alberta today in order to stop this intentionally cruel wave so tomorrow we don't see a death count like we did today. Um, I would now like to bring Dr. Bakshi into the conversation. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Um, as Dr. Vipon just alluded to, we are hearing that there are some leaks about potential measures such as vaccine passports. And while that's something that we certainly need and needed weeks ago, it's not going to be enough for the disaster that we're seeing right now. Our ICU and hospitals are on fire and we need a strict firebreaker to be able to get through this wave. We are already out of control. We are already seeing many deaths today being the third deadliest day for Alberta from COVID, but we're also seeing a lot of downstream effect on other illnesses and surgeries being postponed. So uh, it is my sincere hope and plead to Premier Kenny and his cabinet and Dr. Hinshaw that we see some effective measures today to protect our province. Thank you very much. I would now also like to bring in Dr. David Keegan, who is on our panel today and is also part of the Protect Our Province AB Coalition. Dr. Keegan. Thank you, Michelle. What we need to happen today is for Premier Kenny, the Cabinet, and Dr. Hinshaw to say that they're going to follow science and do everything in their power to stop this deadly, preventable wave. Again, this was preventable. They had warning. Warnings, multiple warnings, all sorts of modeling, this was preventable. So they need to now do whatever they can. So we're talking about a real mass mandate without all these holes. Vaccine passports at a minimum, banning indoor dining full out, strict capacity limits, if not closure of commerce and business, engagement of the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta, having the government have them work with schools to maximize filtration and ventilation to protect the kids virtual care improvements, N95 treating 
COVID as the airborne disease it is. And finally, a frank acknowledgement from our government that ministers of the Crown and the Premier who took oaths to look after Albertans apologize for choosing this deadly path. We need to hear clear leadership now that puts Albertans first. We can't have more days and days of 24 people dying. And soon, it's going to be 50, it's going to be more, day by day. It has to end now. Thank you so very much. We will be back again, as Dr. Vipond mentioned, at 7 p.m. tonight to talk more about what unfolds early this evening um, from the government of Alberta. We chose not to postpone today's live conversation because it is still a, a very important topic and one of the reasons why we really do need to see a firebreaker to mitigate transmission. We know that we are at a critical juncture at this exact moment in time in terms of hospital capacity, ICU capacity. But we also know from the previous three waves that there are long-term effects that will severely hinder folks' who knows how long, folks who don't necessarily end up in hospital or end up in ICU. And so we felt that we needed to keep today's scheduled briefing because there are so many reasons why we need to acknowledge the airborne transmission, the need to be vaccinated, the need to wear N95 so we can prevent what has happened to some of our panelists happening to the rest of Alberta. I am going to bring into our conversation Dr. Weatherall to share some information around what he has been seeing in his practice in post-COVID conditions. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi there, it's uh, nice to be here. So I, I prepared a few slides just to give an introduction to uh, what we're calling long COVID. So long COVID really refers to um, people who have persistent symptoms after COVID-19 infection, generally after 12 weeks. And um, if you could put up the slides, I, I can just uh, illustrate some of what we're talking about. Um, a lot of people will have symptoms that last for you know beyond four weeks of infection but the majority of those people will improve studies show that at least 50, or 10 to 15 percent of people will have symptoms beyond 12 weeks and the most common symptoms that people have uh, are things like fatigue breathlessness and and many people persistent loss of uh, taste and smell but long COVID is really a total body system problem and, and we still don't fully understand what causes it. It uh, is characterized by many problems, neurologic problems, inflammation of the heart and the lungs, um, severe fatigue, which I really can't emphasize enough that uh, we're talking about young people, uh, people who are so tired and so fatigued and so symptomatic that they cannot uh, perform their daily lives, they can't go back to their jobs, they can't take care of their children. Um, it, it, it's really a, a terrible thing. Um, the first slide here just sort of shows the timeline of this problem. So you, you see um, here on the left, the acute 
virus um, in that purple curve as it goes up. And then generally the in the green curve, you see the amount of virus uh, tapering off um, by, by four weeks. But then there's a whole host of um, long-term problems. And if you go to the next slide, there's a bit of an overview of, of which body systems are involved. And as I said, this can involve the, the brain, the nerves. Uh, people have cognitive problems where they can't remember things or concentrate. And, and this has resulted in a major impairment in, in people's daily lives and in their work. Uh, but we see the lungs and the hearts affected, the muscles, the kidneys, um, reproductive problems. There's just so many things that we're learning about uh, in terms of long COVID. And this is really not a rare problem. Like I said, 10 to 15% at least are affected. Many of these people were never in hospital. And, and that's the thing that we're not measuring here in these numbers. And I, I want people to keep in mind that um, when we're talking about 10% of people having long-term disability, every day we're seeing 1,500, 1,600 cases. That's another 150, 160 Albertans who probably won't be able to go back to work. And in many of the patients that we're seeing, these symptoms are still persistent six months, 12 months later. Um, and so it's a huge mass disabling event that continues to occur in our province on a daily basis. Uh, if you go to the, the next slide, this does show just some examples of what can happen to the lungs in patients with uh, long COVID. Generally, people who are in the hospital with COVID are more likely to have persistent damage to the lungs and the other organs. The people who aren't in hospital uh, with their acute COVID, we generally don't see a lot of lung damage. We occasionally pick up uh, certain abnormalities like inflammation or, or scar tissue, but it's uh, less common in that group of people. Um, if you go to the last slide there, um, just wanted to give a representation of how poor quality of life is in these people with long COVID. So we, we did a, a study based out of here uh, with a, a colleague who's a postdoc, uh, Rosemary Twomey, who submitted this uh, paper for publication. And what you're seeing here is people with long COVID and we're comparing their quality of life to the general populations. The general population is the blue bars for different types of quality of life, like physical performance, emotional well-being, um, overall health. Uh, the higher the, the bar, the better your quality of life. So the light blue bars uh, represent the normal population. Um, we've compared people with long COVID to people with um, COPD or emphysema related to smoking and people with rheumatoid arthritis. The, the people with long COVID are the red bars. So you, as, as I said, uh, larger bars mean better quality of life, lower bars mean lower quality of life. And you can see across multiple domains of uh, quality of life, people with long COVID are, are really impaired. Um, and in some cases, like their physical functioning, they're much, much worse than people with severe lung disease or with rheumatoid arthritis. And so uh, this just kind of illustrates how bad of a problem this can be um, and how important it is to stop transmission in the community because um, these people are being lost in the numbers that we're seeing every day. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And we will be bringing you back momentarily as we go into our roundtable and question time period. Next, I would like to bring Susie Golding into the conversation. Um, and she's going to share some of the work that she has been doing with folks across the country who have been living with this challenge over the last 18 months. Hi, thanks, Michelle. I'm, I'm Susie Golding, director of the Long COVID Kids Canada. Next slide, please. 
I'm also the founder of the COVID Long Haulers Support Group Canada, which is Canada's largest online COVID community with over 14,200 members. Next slide, please. Longcovidkids.org originated in the UK by Sammy McFarlane in response to her daughter having long COVID and not being able to access much care or help. Today, we have branches in Canada, the US, Scotland, Ireland, Greece, and South Africa. Next slide, please. What we do is we support children living with long COVID and their families. We provide the latest information available about long COVID and we educate through community engagement, resources and connections. We're collaborating with researchers, doctors, government, public health and research organizations to help better provide better patient outcomes. Next slide, please. This slide here represents the first onset of symptoms, what to look for when your kids have COVID. How does COVID present in children? The symptoms may be difficult to notice as they may mimic seasonal colds, allergies, flus, and in some cases may be symptomatic. They may have one symptom or they may have many. The top symptoms to look for are fever or chills, a cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, muscle aches or body aches, new loss of taste or loss of smell, sore throat, congestion or runny nose, vomiting, nausea or diarrhea. Next chart, please. If you are concerned that your child may have COVID-19, if your child has any of these symptoms, please get a PCR test. This next chart is a very complex chart of flow and we'll walk you through how to proceed from a PCR test right through to supporting acute phase to long COVID recovery. Um, I won't go through this chart because it is quite uh, complex, but it is available in through our support group. We have a Facebook group uh, platform that we share information out of. So please feel free to join us for more information. Next slide, please. Michelle, masking the importance of masking. We do not know what the long-term implications of COVID are on children. So the best way to protect yourself and your family is through implementation of safety standards. Masking, hand washing, social distancing, maximizing ventilation and filtration in schools, and vaccination when done in tandem can help protect your loved ones and stop the spread of COVID-19. When you choose a mask for your child, make sure you are choosing a tight fitting mask, preferably with a wired nose, elastics that go around the head. Cloth masks are okay, but much more effective if layered with a surgical mask on top. The top protection would be to have K95. These are available in children's sizes, but must not be substituted by wearing an adult size. Next slide, please, Michelle. What is long COVID or PASC? 
post-acute sequelae COVID or post-COVID condition. As uh, Dr. Weatherald was saying, anything from four to 12 weeks is known as long COVID and anything beyond that, symptoms that just don't go away, is referred to as post-COVID syndrome or long COVID. There are 64, sorry, next slide, please. There are 74, 64 kids in, in this chart, just to show you the, the prevalence of, of symptoms. Um, you know, there are so many symptoms and conditions related with long COVID in children. There's all kinds of neurological implications. Um, it stretches across multi-organs and some of the symptoms that these kids are having are debilitating um, and life-changing. Um, some of the symptoms to look out for for long COVID are fever, nausea, mood changes, rashes, dizziness, sore throat, joint muscle pain and weakness, fatigue, headaches, chest pain, and gastrointestinal issues, such as GERD, which many people have, or gastrointestinal inflammation. Next slide, please. Long COVID is not yet defined. We know it is characterized as a condition with multi-system involvement and significant disability with an episodic or fluctuating nature. There are 1,200 children in our UK group with 890 families that have not returned to their previous state of health. The latest study out of the clock in the UK found that one in seven children develop long COVID. That's 14%, which is a huge number. In Israel, studies showed that 11% suffered from long COVID. I shudder to think what Canada's numbers are. The research is just getting underway in adults. Children have been completely off the radar and left to their own. In the last three weeks in our support groups, we have noticed a huge influx of new members, especially within our adult group. These members are from Alberta and represent 80% of new memberships. In closing, I'd just like to reiterate that there is so much unknown of long COVID in kids. There are ways that we can protect ourselves. And the best way is through avoidance and through vaccination. So please everyone who is able to get vaccinated and wear a mask. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susie. Um, I'm going to bring the rest of our group into the conversation. That way we can all spend a little bit of time together unpacking what this has been like for all of you from a clinical perspective to a personal perspective. Susie, you just spoke a lot about tiny humans and not so tiny humans. With us today, I'm very thankful that we have Charlize, a not so tiny, formerly tiny human. Um, Charlize, you're 15, yes? Yes, I am. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your COVID story with all of us? For sure, yeah. So in April, during the third wave, 
I ended up getting COVID from school. Um, this was while we had, I couldn't get vaccinated yet. Um, and some individuals had a house party, um, which was currently illegal, like it was against the law. Um, and they came to school knowing they had COVID. Unfortunately, I shared classes with these individuals. Um, they sat around me in class. We were all still wearing masks. Um, four in my class ended up having it. Um, and so we got a call home. As soon as my mom picked me up, I knew that it could have been a high chance that I could have gotten it, even though I didn't know these individuals very well. Um, so as soon as I got picked up, I sat in the back of as far away from my mom as possible, and my whole family quarantined. Um, about, let's say, 48 hours later, I started to get super sick. I, I've never been so sick in my life. I could barely walk. Um, I, my chest, the pain in my chest was unbelievable. It was hard to breathe. Um, couldn't eat anything. I just felt so exhausted. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, the hard, the hardest thing was, of course, not like not being able to see my family. So I just stayed in my room. Uh, high fever, and I ended up having it for about I'd say twelve days. Uh, I went to the hospital for a day. There wasn't much they could do for me, um, so I stayed in at home. Uh, luckily, no one else in my family got it, but now, unfortunately, um, I still have severe chest issues, so I can't, whenever I do sports, I'm exposed to the cold, or um, just do, or a lot of, actually, now I've developed kind of like a new test anxiety, like in school, um, lots of stress. My chest almost eases, and it's like a through the front and through the back. Um, I've got extreme fatigue. Uh, I'm usually quite a busy, busy kid. Um, and I'm always super exhausted at school, which affects me being able to do my sports and extracurriculars as well as performing well. Um, and I, I did end up getting vaccinated, but um, there's not much that's improved since then. And they've been trying to figure out what's wrong. They've put me on some inhalers with steroids and stuff, um, but nothing has really Issues. Dr. Keegan, Dr. Weatherald, is that is Charlize's story similar to what you guys have been hearing in our not so tiny tiny humans population? Yeah, it's it's essentially identical. I mean, we've seen hundreds of people with very similar uh, symptoms, and and they can be really distressing, and I think really frustrating for for patients. Um, like Shirley's and, and also for us as physicians is that we do all sorts of testing, looking for diseases we already know uh, occur like asthma or blood clots in the lungs or scarring in the lungs or inflammation in the lungs or inflammation of the heart. And we just don't find anything. And it's really, really limits what we can offer patients. So we try therapies, we try medications for those conditions that we know very well, and none of them really work for most patients. And so, you know, I can, you know, just help, guide patients through this, but most of the things we try don't really work. And so, you know, this is a condition that's not really well understood uh, yet. It's still early days and, and research, although it moves very quickly during COVID, it still works at a, a very slow pace. And so we're only finding out about what long COVID's about now, and it's going to be another six months or a year before we have any 
trials that show whether therapies work in this condition. And, and so I think, you know, Charlize's story is very, uh, unfortunately, very typical and, and um, it can be just really, really severe. Um, it really disrupts people's lives. And, and in many cases, people are, are um, you know, even more disabled, uh, especially in older people that, that get this condition. You know, it, like I'm 50, um, you know, slings and arrows come your way at some point over your journey as a human on this earth. But we should be doing everything we can to protect kids and youth. You know, they're, they, that's the group that has been hit dramatically this whole pandemic whether it's been, you know, schools were shut down and then schools were shut down again. When there were other measures in the second wave, we knew it was coming. And there were things that could have been done to prevent the closure of the schools and the third wave. And here we are now, there's been deliberate inaction, which has led to, again, more kids like Charlize, more youth like Charlize will be facing this. And this is 100% preventable and is 100% chosen. And that is just stunning. Like why, like I was on the ground in SARS in Ontario. I worked emergency in London, Ontario, but I was part of the group that coordinated which patients went where in the province. And we were all working hard, but we knew the government was behind us 100%. Sure, we might be, you know, there might be some errors and we'd figure out our way and change processes, but we knew the government was behind us. It was going to do what needed to be done to protect Ontario and Canada. And here we are today, we don't have that same support. We have a mask mandate that has holes in it, that has exemptions for churches and gyms and, and, and if you're further than six feet away. It's a weaker mask mandate than the mask mandates for the second and third wave. And they weren't enough then. It makes no sense why are we choosing, why is our government by its policy choosing to expose children and youth like Charlize to weeks, months, and maybe years of fatigue, difficulty breathing, inability to participate in sports, poor sleep, and so on? Why would we do this? There is, there's like no good explanation for it because even if it was some business economic reason, no, the research has shown and it came out a while ago that no, when you hurt your people, you hurt your economy. We know that these conventions have been canceled because of how poorly Alberta has managed the Delta wave. So there's no reason to be doing this. And yet we're doing it. Or more precisely, the government is not doing what it needs to do to protect kids and youth growing up and to protect all of Albertans. LJ is joining us by phone. Um, LJ is a 36-year-old female who was diagnosed with COVID and is still struggling with long COVID. LJ, would you be willing to share a little bit of your story as well? Hi. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, for, thanks for doing this. Thanks to all of you so much. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I tested positive in during the second wave in early December. Um, I was pretty sick, like for about three weeks, like very intense symptoms. I was hospitalized in that period. Um, and then after that, 
just the main symptoms that were still quite severe were my lung, uh, my lungs, um, just not being able to breathe, the constant going to various diagnostic testing appointments. Um, I have take about I take four different inhalers daily to this day that I never needed before. I did not have asthma before. Um, I don't smoke. I was relatively healthy before I caught it. Um, and it's now been 10 months and I still to this day can't draw a deep breath. Um, if I do anything more than a slow walk, any sort of incline or stairs or anything like that, um, it's really difficult for me. And also if I push myself and do it, which I have been doing, um, just cause I'm, I think I'm just frustrated with the situation. What ends up happening is for two or three days afterwards, I have so much pain in my chest that I can't sleep in any position. Um, talking about fatigue, I really do believe that a lot of my fatigue personally is related to this impact on sleep that the issues of the lungs has. I, I, I don't know about other long COVID people, but I, I rarely sleep more than four hours a night. Um, and it's disjointed sleep because of not being able to breathe properly. Um, and then in addition to those lung issues, uh, I've had a lot of the neurological symptoms as well. Um, I My legs and arms and face go numb and like numb and tingling feeling. Um, it happens every day, at least on one of my arms or legs or face um, for about five to 10 minutes, sometimes multiple times a day. And it doesn't hurt, but it's unsettling. And it actually makes me fearful of driving because you know if you're driving and your whole leg goes numb um so it's kind of made me i think isolate a lot more just because i i don't want to go out and drive anywhere um and then in addition to that um and this one's maybe a bit more of a shallow <laughs> a shallow symptom but my hair is falling out um i've lost so much of the thickness of my hair and you know as a woman it's it's a little unsettling and I'm vain enough to let you know that it bothers me and I don't know where it's going to end because there's, I've read online, lots of people with the long hauler COVID have had to like shave their head and just like totally lose their hair. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, my menstrual cycle has been impacted. I've not had a menstrual cycle since I was diagnosed with COVID. So, I mean, thankfully, I'm not trying to conceive, but I know a lot of women my age are, and I can't imagine how devastating it would be for them to have to put everything on hold because of that. Um, and I just also want to point out that I caught COVID in a public area. I don't know the source of where I caught it. Um, I think it was at the grocery store. Um, and I've been very careful throughout this whole pandemic, uh, masking and working from home and and all of that. So. Yeah, that's, I guess, just a little bit of where I'm at. Um, I think emotionally, just seeing the lack of action on our, from our government, you know, like I've heard people, and I don't know if there's any data to support this, but I've heard a lot of people say it's, you know, five to 10% of people with COVID are ending up to be long haulers. So, I mean, we hear that there's 1,600 new cases today. That means 160 people could be experiencing what me and Charlize are experiencing and I wouldn't wish this on anyone, you know, it's a, it's a very serious condition and there is no answers. 
and it really impacts your daily life in terms of work, socialization, um, exercise, sleep. So yeah, that's, that's all I'll say for now, unless you have questions. Thank you so very much for coming to talk with us today about what you've been experiencing. One of the challenges that I think a lot of people face throughout this pandemic is the lack of firsthand accounts and access to that type of information. Um, I was thinking exactly the same thing that you were saying around 160 humans who could face this for the next year, two years, five years, just from today's cases alone. We have no idea. And what type of impact that will have on our healthcare system that is collapsing and on the, the future generations are this next generation. Um, Charlize being a part of that Gen Z contingent and those Gen Xers and millennials who could be experiencing some serious reproductive ramifications. From the medical perspective, Dr. Weatherall and Dr. Keegan, I've noticed a lot of what I believe to be misinformation around reproductive challenges post-vaccine and what I believe to be a lot of accurate information around reproductive challenges that can occur post-COVID. Um, would the two of you be willing to speak a little bit on that? Um, I feel particularly, I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about erectile dysfunction in all honesty. So I haven't had any patients come to me with a concern of erectile dysfunction related to COVID yet, but the bottom line is if you get COVID, you're at a significant risk of erectile dysfunction. That's, that's been shown. Versus there appears to be no risk, despite what some celebrities might be saying about their cousins. Uh, there don't seem to be credible numbers of people uh, getting uh, erectile dysfunction as a result of the vaccine, which makes sense. Because you know the, if you get the natural disease, the virus, we know the Delta virus runs rampant and causes inflammation throughout the entire body. It, it makes sense that you'd be at a higher risk of erectile dysfunction. Um, and so it, it's pretty clear, like if, if, if anybody is out there and just wants to look after number one, just look after themselves, you get the vaccine because you're far less likely to die if you get COVID, you're far less likely to get COVID. And if you do get COVID, you're far less likely to get any of the ramifications, but most importantly, you're less likely to get it and all of its possible problems. So like, if you're looking after yourself, get vaccinated. It doesn't have to be for the social good, though there is a massive social good to getting it. And if you have COVID, the, the immunity from natural COVID, from the wild type COVID, uh, it apparently only lasts approximately three months or so. And we're not sure how well it actually works against Delta. There, there are numerous case reports of people getting multiple episodes of COVID in Alberta. Um, so everything is clear. Get vaccinated, whether you're thinking about just yourself or about society or some amazing combination of both get vaccinated. Thanks for that, uh, Dr. Keegan. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm a lung specialist by training, so probably don't have much to say about erectile dysfunction. But, um, you know, I, I do want to talk a bit about uh, pregnancy um, and hesitation uh, among people who are pregnant about getting the vaccine, about, about some concerns. Um, I, I have two young kids myself. I know that, you know, there's a lot of concern among women who are pregnant about the potential risk of the vaccine and what it might do to, to their unborn child. Um, there is some data uh, about this already. Um, there's at least one study I know of of over over 3,000 women who had the vaccine during pregnancy, and, and there does not seem to be a safety concern with the mRNA vaccines in pregnant patients in terms of increased risk uh, for the pregnancy uh, miscarriages or um, uh, risks to the babies. Um, there is very good evidence that getting COVID during pregnancy is associated with bad outcomes, including uh, loss of pregnancy, preterm birth, um, and even maternal death. And, and I know for a fact that pregnant women in Calgary are being intubated um, for COVID right now. And I think that we need to do a better job as healthcare providers, but also as a society about providing accurate information to these people who are genuinely concerned and not anti-vaccine, but just concerned about the safety risk, which is warranted concern. But, th but there is evidence out there that we have already that, that should reassure these people. And, you know, I, I think as clinicians, there's different way, ways that we can frame that conversation to people. And, uh, you know, I think that's one thing about you know, ensuring reproductive health, and including in pregnant women, that we really have to focus on trying to get accurate information to those people so we avoid these bad pregnancy outcomes. Um, to follow up what Dr. Keegan said, I, I don't know of any data at all uh, of, of the billions of people who have been vaccinated that there is a reproductive risk of getting vaccinated. I don't think that has come out. Uh, so, I mean, it's pretty clear to me. Thank you both very much. Um, on that line of vaccination myths, long COVID myths slash truths, what there's a lot of conversation, and Charlize brought it up briefly as well, around some hopes that the vaccine might help with some of her post-COVID symptoms. Um, are we seeing that in long COVID patients where some people are finding some relief from the vaccination if they weren't vaccinated prior? And anecdotally, I've, I've had a few patients describe that to me. Um, there, there is a study out there I'm aware of that suggested about 20% of people had improvement in their symptoms after getting the vaccine. Um, so that's not a lot, but it's better than nothing. Um, you know, I have one patient who had markedly improved symptoms after getting the vaccine. And so it, it can occur. This is a patient that had symptoms for six months and then all of a sudden, a few weeks later after the vaccine, they got better. So, uh, um, you know, it can occur. It's not extremely common, but um, I haven't, I've also heard some people having, you know, flu-like symptoms after the vaccine. So they feel a little bit worse after, but I have not um, experienced patients who who had real real severe and prolonged worsening of their long COVID symptoms after the vaccine, uh, beyond what um, most of us experience with the vaccine, which is, is a bit of a, a flu-like illness for a few days. And my final two questions before I bring back absolutely everybody for some 
messages for Albertans watching. Um, tiny humans under three. We got some questions from the audience around tiny humans under three. Have you had any tiny humans under three that have needed to be treated for long COVID? Yeah, I have not. I don't. Uh, I don't see pediatric patients, so I, I can't speak to that. Um... So I do see children as part of my my uh, clinical panel. I haven't seen any with uh, long COVID yet, but I know there are. From talking to ped pediatric colleagues, there are lots of kids who are you know in hospital, uh, you know, and new numbers over just the last few days, new kids having to be admitted. So to be clear, new kids with a 100% preventable disease being so sick, they have to be admitted to hospital. Uh, and then we know that there's a portion of them will end up with long COVID approximately 10% and, uh, and maybe by about six months, it might be a bit, it might be lower, hopefully it will. Um, but the thing is all these people with long COVID, our health system is not ready or able, we don't have in some ways the capacity, we're not ready for all these patients. So again, today, six, 160 Albertans have been condemned to long-term COVID today from the 1600 who were diagnosed in the last 24 hours. And, and Dr. Hinsha acknowledged that the current testing system is missing a lot of people. So it might be as high as four times as that. So all those folks are going to be needing care from people like me and by governmental policy, many family doctors have been clobbered by the decisions of our government to decrease the, the funding, the payments for their care by 30 to 70%, which has led to family practice after family practice closing. And we're getting back to the massive shortage we had back in the late, uh, like around 2008, when I moved to Calgary, we're, I'm, we're getting people calling us all the time looking for a new family doc because their family doc has retired or moved, retired or moved. And, and that's just to care for the patients we have with the normal kind of volumes of health issues that we deal with. And now we're dealing with a, a huge wave of people who are getting long COVID on top of that. So what we need is we need to stabilize not just ICUs and we need to and the acute care hospitals. We also need to stabilize primary care. We need AHS to keep the, or the, the Chief Medical Officer of Health to keep the AHS testing and tracing in place. Family docs can't suddenly assume that on top of everything that we're dealing with, on top of the patients who we have, many of whom have all sorts of accumulated health problems they need care for. So we're not ready, we'll do, we're gonna do what we need to do and we're gonna try. But the key message is that this disaster has to be brought to its knees before Alberta is brought to its knees. You went into my last medical-oriented question there, doc Dr. Keegan, without me even asking it. Um, so Dr. Weatherald, I will put it over to you. Do you feel like Alberta is ready to deal with the long COVID numbers? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there's there's a group of people uh, from primary care to to specialized care in the major cities who are who are trying to keep up with the demand. Um, we just don't have capacity. We have other 
practices and other patients in our practice that depend on us. And I think the healthcare system isn't ready for it. I also think that our economy is not ready for it. I mean, this is a pretty clear cut economic problem. We're talking about people in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s who aren't working anymore because of these symptoms. They're not paying taxes into the system to fund our healthcare system. So for those people who like economic arguments, it's a pretty clear one to me that vaccinations will prevent illness. They will prevent long COVID. They will protect our economy long term. Um, our, our system is not equipped to deal with this level of disability. Uh, it's just not set up to do that. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the the clinicians. Yeah, the economic and personal cost of this is atrocious. So I deal with people, you know, I work with all my patients and, you know, we, we work, we've got the recession and now a whole bunch of those people are now dealing with, they can't work or they won't be able to work full time, taking massive pay cuts. I, there is no economic argument for saying that we should be doing anything other than bringing this outbreak under control. And I, I, they have to be, if they swore an oath when they took office, please God, that they will bring in the measures because otherwise we're looking at more deaths, much more disability and the personal, spiritual, social and financial impact and the economic impact of that is terrible. Like listening to LJ, Listening to Charlize, listening to Susan, yeah, the, we have to stop this now. We have, we can't just keep happily accepting all this death and disability. It's terrible. Susie, I've looped you back into our conversation at the moment, um, wondering about the demographics of long COVID kids. Right. Well, we do have kids as young as two years old in our group. Um, which is astounding. And there are studies out of Israel that suggest that there is no age demographics as, as far as kids are concerned. It can hit any kid at any age. Um, you know, this is particularly concerning as you're talking about the socioeconomic um, implications on, on the family. You know, these there are parents that are going to have to stay home to be able to take care of these children and a loss of, um, you know, People are going to have to quit jobs to be able to become primary caregivers. Uh, people who are, you know, trying to get their kids back in school and are having to pick, uh, getting calls from the school in, in midday to come and pick their kids up because they're, they've crashed. They're not feeling well. You know, this is a very serious disease um, with terrible implications and and it needs to be taken seriously it needs to be avoided at all costs people need to get serious at getting vaccinated people need to wear masks and just avoid the only way to not to not have long covid is to avoid the virus period and it's just you know disheartening to know that albertans are going through this crisis and struggling and and it really needs to be um, brought to the attention of the government. Thank you all so very much for joining us today. Um, after today's presentation, the Pop Alberta Socials will be sharing Dr. Weatherald's slides um, and also information about long COVID kids.
for anybody who needs to access any of the things that we've talked about today or anybody who needs to access them in a month based on the numbers we heard today. Before we say goodbye, I would love to have each of our panelists give just a final sentence of what you really need everybody watching to hear. Maybe we will start with you, Susie, go over to Dr. Weatherall, then Dr. Keegan, then LJ, and we will end on Charlize. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, to everyone tonight who, who is out there in the audience, please, if you are suffering from long COVID, or if you do know family or friends who are suffering from long COVID, they do not have to suffer on their own. We have a support group that offers peer-to-peer -peer support as well as the latest information for adults as well as children. The links will be provided by Michelle. And please everyone take care, be kind to one another, get vaccinated, wear masks, avoid large social gatherings, and please write to your premier, write him a letter asking for help. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if I could say it any better than what Susie said. I, I think the key things are get vaccinated. The vaccines are safe. Uh, they're effective. Everyone should get them. There's very, very few reasons not to get vaccinated uh, out there. Uh, that's the truth. And please be kind to one another. We're going into a pretty dark time in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so take care of those around you. Dr. Keegan, you are muted. So get immunized, absolutely. Demand decisive science-based action. But as Dr. Weatherall said, this is going to get worse, way worse than whatever you've been reading in the headlines until now. But remember, it was 100% preventable, which is a very scary thing to think about. LJ? Over to you. Hi, my message to Albertans is to express gratitude to all of the healthcare workers, the doctors and nurses that are doing everything they can to help Albertans through this crisis. And also don't be idle, get involved, get politically active, demand that our government stop this misguided ideological insanity and follow the advice of health experts and professionals on what to do next to get us out of this. Thank you. Charlize, I'm headed over to you. Yeah, you know, what I would say is to get vaccinated. You know, COVID is real for kids. Kids can get long haul. I'm living proof. So let's protect ourselves and others and let's just work together um, to help protect like future generations. Thank you so very much. And thank you everyone who joined us today. Um, we were scheduled to return Friday at 4 p.m. And we will to talk with some patients and medical professionals impacted by the ongoing surgical postponements and cancellations. But likely we will be coming to you live tonight post the government of Alberta's announcement. Until next time, remember COVID-19 is airborne. 
wear the best available mask you have access to. Vaccinations really do save lives. And thank you. Try everyone to stay safe. Thank you.